Salvete omnes, welcome to the AP Latin Podcast. The goal of this podcast will be to cover the lines from Caesar's De Bello Gallico and Virgil's Aeneid that are found on the AP Latin curriculum. Each two-part episode will cover a selection of lines from Caesar and Virgil. I will present the Latin and English of the text, providing relevant clarification, background, and cultural information that will help put the readings in their proper context. I encourage you to read along with me as you listen to the Latin and to use the English as a way to check your understanding rather than relying on the English for understanding. Each episode will conclude with some essential questions to consider as you process through the meaning of the text. Parati, eamos. AP Latin Podcast, Episode 16a, De Bello Gallico, Book 5, Chapters 37 to 39. In this episode, you will hear the shocking twist ending that absolutely no one saw coming, and you will learn how Ambiorix is Caesar Light. Sabinus, quos in praesentia tribunos militum circum se habebat, et primorum ordinum centuriones se sequi jubet, et cum propius ambiorigem acesisset, Iusus arma abicera imperatum facit suisque ut idem faciant imperat. Interum, dum de condicionibus inter se agunt, langiorque consulto ab ambiorige instituitur sermo, paulatim circumventus interficitur, tum vero suomore victoriam conclamant, atque ululatum talunt impetuque in nostros facto ordines perturbant. Ibi Lucius Cata pugnans interficitur, cum maxima parte militum. Reliquis se in castra recipiunt unde erant egressi. Exquibus Lucius Petrosidius aquilifer, cum magna multitudine hostium premeretur, aquilam intravalum projecit. Ipse pro castris fortissime pugnans occiditur. Illi aigre ad noctem opugnationem sustenent. Noctu ad unum omnes desperata solute se ipsi interficiunt. Pauci ex proilio elapsi incertis itineribus per silvas ad titum labienum legatum in hiberna perveniunt, atque eum de rebus gestis certiorum faciunt. Hac victoria sublatus ambiorix statem cum equitatu in aduatucos, qui erant eos regno finitimi, proficiscitur, Neque noctem neque diem intermittit, peditatum que se se subsequi jubet. Re demonstrata aduatucisque concitatis, postero die in nervios pervenit, hortaturque ne sui in perpetuum liberandi atque ulciscendi romanos, pro eis quas aceperent in iuriis, occasionem dimitant. Interfectos esse legatos, duos, magnamque partem exercitus interesse demonstrat, nihil esse negoti subito oppressam legionem quae cum cicerone hiemet interfici, se ad eam rem profitetur adjutorem. Facile hac orationi neriis persuadet. Itaque confestem, dimissis nuntiis, ad ceotrones grudios levacos plumoxios gaidumnos, Qui omnes sub eorum imperio sunt, quam maximas manus possunt cogunt, et de improviso ad Ciceronis hiberna ad volant, nandum ad eam fama de tituri morte perlata. Huic quoque acidit quod fuit necesse, ut non noli milites, qui lignationis munitionis causa, in silvas discessent, repentino equitum adventu intercipperentur. 
Eis circumwentis magna manu eberones nervii aduatuki atque horomomnium socii et clientes, legionem opugnare incipiunt. Nostri celeriter ad arma concurrunt, valum conscendunt. Aigre isties sustentatur, quod omnim spem hostes in celeritate ponebant, atque, hanc adepti victoriam, in perpetuum, se fore victores confidebant. Sabinus orders the tribunes of the soldiers whom he had around himself at the present, and the centurions of the first ranks, to follow himself. And when he had approached closer to Ambiorix, having been ordered to throw away his arms, he does the thing commanded and commands his men to do the same. Meanwhile, while they discuss about conditions among themselves, and a longer speech is started on purpose by Ambiorix, little by little having been surrounded, he is killed. Then truly by their custom they shout victory and raise a howl, and after an attack had been made into our ranks, they throw them into confusion. There, while fighting, Lucius Cotta is killed with the greatest part of the soldiers. The rest retreat back into the camp from where they had gone out, of which Lucius Petrosidius, the eagle-bearer, when he was being overwhelmed by a great multitude of the enemy, threw the eagle within the rampart. He himself is killed while fighting very bravely in front of the camp. Those men difficultly withstood the siege to the night, at night, having lost hope of safety, they kill themselves, every last one. A few, having slipped away from the battle by uncertain paths through the woods, arrive into the winter camp to the legatus Titus Labienus, and they make him more certain about the things done. Elated because of this victory, Ambiorix immediately sets out with the cavalry into the Atoatuki, who were neighbors to his kingdom. Neither night nor day does he pause, and he orders his foot soldiers to follow after. After the situation had been pointed out, and after the Atoatuki had been stirred up, on the next day he arrives into the Nervii, and he encourages them not to lose the opportunity, for liberating themselves in perpetuity and taking vengeance on the Romans for those injuries which they received. He points out that two legati have been killed, and a great part of the army has perished, that it is no trouble for the legion which is wintering with Cicero, suddenly attacked, to be destroyed. He promises himself as a helper for this thing, with this speech, he easily persuades the Nervii. And so, after messengers had been immediately sent to the Cutrones, Grudii, Lavaci, Plumaxi, Gaidumni, who are all under their imperium, they gather as many bands of men as they possibly can, and unexpectedly they fly to the winter camp of Cicero, with the report about the death of Titurius not yet brought to him. It also happened to him, a thing which was necessary, that some soldiers who had departed into the woods for the sake of wood gathering and fortification suddenly were intercepted by the arrival of the cavalry. When these men were surrounded by a large band, the Eberones, Nervii, Atoatuki, and allies and clients of all of these began to attack the legion. Our men quickly run to arms, they ascend the rampart. This day is difficultly withstood, because the enemy was placing all hope and speed, and having reached this victory, they were confident that they would be victors in perpetuity. At the end of the last episode, Sabinus had opened a dialogue with Ambiorix about saving himself and his men, and Cotta had refused to converse with an armed enemy. So Sabinus gathers much of the camp leadership near him and approaches Ambiorix. Ambiorix intentionally draws out the conversation to give his men time to surround the Romans, and then he springs his trap. "'Curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal,' cries Sabinus, as they are all killed. Ambiorix's men cry victory and renew the assault." forcing the rest of the Roman soldiers to retreat back to the camp. And that night, the entire Roman camp, to a man, chooses mass suicide rather than facing torture, humiliation, and slavery as prisoners of war, except for the ones that didn't make it back to the camp. They ran into the woods and made it to Labienus. 
During the events of this passage, Caesar shifts back and forth between his detached commentarious writing style and a more dramatic style. He discusses Sabinus' death in a very detached way, as he does the mass suicide in the camp. But through the battle and the events following, he dramatizes the narrative. He moves into the historical present, bringing the action to life and making it seem as though the reader is watching the events as they unfold. He highlights the heroics of the eagle-bearer bravely hurling the eagle inside the rampart and then facing his death. He points to the speed at which Ambiorix moves with his relentless marches, pausing neither night or day, and outpacing his men to arrive at his destination. He repeatedly uses the words immediately, suddenly, without delay, to further heighten the speed with which Ambiorix moves and the unexpected nature of the impending attack, and he continues emphasizing speed as the Nervii fly ahead of the reports to reach Cicero's camp. Through the words of Ambiorix's speech to the Nervii, Caesar depicts the Gallic resistance as a fight for liberty. But does this mean that Caesar is sympathetic to the Gallic cause? It is a very hard thing to step away from our modern American sentiments here to consider this question. We as a society love our scrappy bands of ragtag rebels. Think about Star Wars, Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, Firefly, Avatar, The Matrix, Gladiator, Braveheart, Robin Hood, The Last Samurai, and a whole host of other modern, epic, period, and sci-fi type movies and other stories. These stories all in some way depict an individual or a small group of rebels fighting the more often than not corrupt, established ruling powers. Whether that is the Galactic Empire, the Ministry of Magic, the Machines, a massive corporation, the Roman Empire, a corrupt ruler, or Western imperialism, we love our stories about underdogs resisting empire and, if not defeating it or holding it bay, then at least dying with their liberty intact. And despite the fact that our nation is empire, at some level of our cultural ideology we still envision ourselves as the scrappy rebels, making those stories resonate strongly within us. So it is difficult for us to think that the Romans may not have viewed the Gallic resistance in the same way. Without resorting to drawing too many parallels with the modern world, it is enough to say that the Romans would have had a kind of cognitive dissonance about the situation. On one hand, they respected the Gallic bravery, but on the other hand, people should know when they are conquered. Caesar seems to have respect for what Ambiorix accomplishes as a leader, and Romans would have appreciated the Gallic bravery in their fighting, Ambiorix's rhetorical skill, and the discipline the Gallic soldiers show, all highlighted by the many failures on the Roman side of things. But with the exception of bravery, the Gallic traits of leadership, rhetorical sophistication, and discipline are not something Caesar placed any emphasis on early in his commentary. If we look back to Orgatorix in Book 1 as our earliest example of a Gallic leader, he unites three tribes through political alliances in much the same way that Ambiorix unifies several groups of tribes to attack the Romans. However, the whole of Orgatorix's persuasive argument is that their borders are narrow and that gaining power is easy to do, where Ambiorix uses rhetoric skilled enough to convince the Romans that he is sincere and that the danger is real. Where Orgatorix deceives his own people in an attempt to satisfy personal ambition, Ambiorix continually downplays the extent of his authority, all while organizing a coordinated resistance and misleading the Romans. Where Orgatorix takes two years to orchestrate his power play, Ambiorix moves with almost unbelievable speed to accomplish his goals. And Orgatorix is ultimately killed by his own people before the Helvetians even enact his plan, while Ambiorix is still alive and breaking oaths. It is as though Caesar, in these later books of the commentary, has begun shifting his portrayal of the Gauls, possibly even to begin laying groundwork for their eventual inclusion and acceptance into the Roman sphere of influence. 
At the beginning of Book 1, Caesar crafted his enemy, especially the Belgae, of which Ambiorix and the Eberones are a part, as a people far removed from civilization, constantly at war with one another and with the Germani, motivated only by the desire for fighting and for glory, and who are so lacking of any rhetorical sophistication that they are persuaded by even the most simplistic of arguments. Now, multiple years into the campaign, the Gauls have a more united front, they have a strong and persuasive leader in Ambiorix who is willing to sacrifice even his personal honor to win, and who has instilled discipline into his forces, which are fighting well enough to beat the Romans. At least when the Romans have terrible leadership, let themselves get tricked, trust the promises of an enemy, fall into an ambush, get surrounded, and have most of their officers killed in false peace talks. The Gauls are learning, and Caesar is beginning to paint them almost as primitive Romans or Romans as they were when they were first starting out. Yes, they are still depicted as fickle and easily swayed by whatever persuasive argument comes their way, but if you read Livy's history, contemporary to Virgil but reporting long-known legends and stories, you will see just as many examples of early Romans who individually or as an army bravely fought against superior numbers, used deception to win their goals, withstood invading forces for personal liberty, learned techniques and technologies from their neighbors and enemies, and became more and more civilized, all of which you can begin to see happening in Caesar's representation of the Gauls. Without writing them as sympathetic characters, because they are still the enemy, Caesar seems to be subtly pointing out that the Gauls are people who share a lot of the same values and ideals as the Romans, if at a less sophisticated level, and who could bring a lot of admirable traits into the Roman world when they are ultimately pacified and brought under Roman imperium. This is a tone Caesar will continue to adopt when, in a few chapters, he explains how the Gauls have learned siege warfare from the Romans, and even continues into Book 6 where he spends a lot of time discussing Gallic religion and culture, especially in contrast with the lack thereof in the Germani. Also remember that part of this narrative's purpose is to remind everyone of what is happening while Caesar is absent, reinforcing just how essential he is as commander of the Roman forces especially when facing Ambiorix, who is such a strong antagonist and mirror to Caesar's own leadership style. All those things that Caesar is well known for, having fiercely loyal soldiers, making smart and confident command decisions, moving at incredible speed, bringing out the best in those under his command, are all traits shared in Ambiorix, plus a hefty dose of deception and willingness to betray and break oaths multiple times in order to win at all costs, making him a great foil for Caesar who, of course, is not present. And we can't help but keep asking ourselves whether events would have turned out differently if Caesar had been there and if Ambiorix had faced the man himself instead of his subordinates. Stirred up by Ambiorix, the Nervii and their allies make incredible time and catch Quintus Cicero's camp off guard, having arrived ahead of any rumor about the disaster of Sabinus and Cotta's camp. Keep in mind that these events are happening only a few weeks after Caesar had assigned them to their various winter camp locations, so Cicero has not even finished fortifying his camp, evidenced by the fact that the people sent to gather wood for their defenses are met by the Gauls. With the attack on Quintus Cicero's camp, Caesar starts bringing in parallelism in his language. Several phrases used in this section have been encountered previously, placing all hope in speed, exacting vengeance on the Romans, rushing to arms and ascending the rampart, a thing which was necessary to happen, and resisting the attack Igre, weakly or with difficulty. These words and phrases all parallel similar words and phrases in the events we just finished reading and are meant for you to recall those events and to set up another potential disaster as it looks at first like Cicero's camp caught off guard and struggling to resist the attack will fall to the enemy. 
and we will see how Cicero and the Romans respond next time. As we close out the episode, here are some essential questions to consider. Where does Caesar choose to dramatize events? Where does he revert to a more detached narrative style? What is the significance of Ambiorx's victory? Why would a victory such as this have been dangerous for Caesar's position in Gaul? Sabinus died in conversation with Ambiorix, who had betrayed him a third time. How does his death compare to the death of Cotta? How does Caesar want us to think about these two men? How does Caesar's narrative create a sense of heightened danger leading up to the attack on Cicero's camp? How does Virgil's description of the Greeks in Aeneid Book 2 compare to Caesar's description of the Nervii? What items does Aeneas bring with him from Troy that carry important symbolic and religious value? How are these items like and unlike a Roman legion's eagle? Gratias ago pro auscultando, valete.